0: During my last year of seminary, I sat on a panel of other seniors at at a Prospective Students' Day. The potential seminarians asked us questions about our school and our experience there. And the professor who moderated the event, one of my mentors, began the conversation by asking each of us to share our call stories, the stories that had led us to seminary, that told us, We were to be ministers. I shared mine. It had evolved, of course, but in a way that felt like it had gotten closer to the truth rather than further from it over time. When I was finished, one of my best friends said, I cannot get over the fact that you just said you felt called by God. We both laughed a little, and I said, why? She'd been with me the whole four years of seminary. She'd known the evolution as it was happening. She'd been one of the people with whom I studied and discussed, and I was learn what I was learning with, and how it was changing my thinking and my theology. So I didn't see why this was so surprising to her. She responded with, I was just thinking about that fit you through in our first Arts of Ministry 1 class, our first week of seminary about how God language alienated you and made it hard for you to participate in any dialogue at all. Sure, she'd been on a good portion of my journey with me, but somehow she was reminded, reminded of how far I'd come in a few years in a way that I had forgotten. i had begun my process of making peace with religious language and traditional metaphors for the ultimate before seminary. But I had still been quite angry about it in the first week that I arrived, enough to argue with my classmates. And at the end of four years, I was openly moved by the role that I saw God to have in my life, which was a pretty stark shift, one that I hadn't quite gotten the gravity of until she pointed it out to me. Perhaps it was just a coincidence that in my second year of seminary, Chris Stedman entered the seminary, moved into my building, and became a good friend. I didn't see him as a major agent in my transformation at the time, though. I saw him merely as a confidant, someone who was downstairs if I needed an ear, or to blast pop music and dance with someone because words just weren't gonna cut it that day. He was my friend. But as his, I read his book, I wondered what influence he might have had. For his story intersects with my own in so many magnificent ways. And while his story led him to an atheism that reaches across to people of faith, and mine led me closer to a God that embraces all people regardless of what they believe, there's something powerfully resonant in his story for me. And from what I know of many of you, I bet there will be those among you who will find his story compelling as well. He shares much of his story in his book, Faithiest, How an Atheist Found Common Ground with Religion because he argues that telling our story is a central part of interfaith dialogue and coalition building. He believes that too many of us base our understandings of religion on the surface, the superficial, and that, we, it, that if we really heard the stories of people of different belief systems than us, that we would be able to move beyond merely tolerating each other to a celebration of religious diversity, also known as engaged pluralism. So he tells his story much more deeply and beautifully than I have time for today, but let me hit on the highlights so as to get to his main point. He spent his childhood in Minnesota, at first, without any religion. In middle school, he was drawn to a group of kids who were Christian, evangelical Christians, in fact, went with them to church, and deeply wanted to belong, and converted. He writes, I wanted to do this. I liked church. I liked the people there. But even more so, I just wanted to be a part of it all. I wanted to be a part of the Christ Club. I wanted a relationship with Jesus. I wanted a place to belong. And I wanted a framework that, to make sense of injustice and suffering. The pastor preached about a loving and forgiving God who would always care for me and who would provide those things. His church gave him roots, a community. He threw himself in, and soon his whole family followed suit. By high school, however, he could no longer deny his homosexuality. He writes with heart wrenching beauty of the time he spent searching his teen study Bible for any passage that might tell him that he was not made wrong. He read and reread the commentaries of the passages that have been interpreted by some to mean that homosexuality is a sin. The commentaries made no room for him at the table, they were clear he was an abomination. When his mom discovered he was gay, he was lucky. When he cried, fearful that she would side with the religion that he had brought her to, believing that there was truly something wrong with him and that he didn't deserve love, his mother told him that she loved him and brought him to a pastor who would do the same. This event had occurred in the same year as September 11th, 2001, a day that perhaps all of us questioned where a good, loving presence might fit into the realities of human suffering. And though he had found a pastor at another church who affirmed God's love for him, Chris writes, I had stepped out of the closet and out of the church and I had no desire to ever set foot in either one again. I still believed in God, but after learning that there were multiple interpretations of the passages of the Bible that, I purported, that purportedly addressed homosexuality, I believed his willingness to let me go on suffering so long meant that he was either malevolent or vicious or detached and unconcerned with my well-being. I didn't want to go to church, He was a bully, and going to his house was the last thing I wanted. And yet, somehow, Chris decided to go to a Christian college and study religion. (laughs) And it was there he would have yet another conversion. Somehow, slowly, the more he learned about God, the less he believed. It's funny to me how much that resonates as the more I learned about God, the more I believed in something different but called it God just the same. He writes, I wanted to believe in God. I wanted to love Jesus and participate in his fellowship of believers. I looked to many Christians as pillars of goodness, and I wanted to emulate their compassion and social justice, justice ethic. Sure, there were Christians who promoting hate, but I'd met few people more dedicated to repairing the world and helping those in need than the Christians I knew. So as he became more and more of an atheist, he continued to look for common ground with religious people. And then, somehow, he ended up at Meadville Lombard, a Unitarian Universalist seminary. We weren't sure, the, my classmates and I, what to do with a non-Unitarian Universalist student. We thought he was going to convert to Unitarian Universalism. He sounded pretty UU to us. We sometimes teased him about this. He non-defensively answered us with how we want, he wanted to build bridges between the religions. To this, I often argued, yeah. That's what we do at Unitarian Universalist churches. But he explained that being the bridge between people who get more meaning from some texts than from others, but who are actually pretty clear about what binds them together wasn't what he was after. He had his sights set on something much larger. And the lessons that he shares with the the larger community around interfaith dialogue have applications for us in our churches as well. Because we aren't always perfectly clear about what binds this tradition together. We do struggle sometimes with why we come together as a people who believe very different things. We do fall into the trap of forgetting that the tradition that we share is deep and rich and has much still to teach us while creating a place sometimes where the lowest common denominator of religion rules so that no one is offended, and where we rarely actually tell our deep religious stories, but instead draw lines that separate the theists from the atheists, from the Buddhists, from the pagans. We do too often define ourselves by what we are not, and as Chris would put it, our negative fixations color our worldview. And I have heard stories of visitors to our churches who have felt like Chris did in our reading. Visitors who were looking for a place to be religious in a different way and were told in verbal and nonverbal ways that they were at the wrong party. So perhaps we have we we should also learn from the critiques that Chris makes to the larger religious world. Perhaps this engaged pluralism idea is still something we're working towards, falling short once in a while. And perhaps we might need some guidance on our way. I think his story and his conclusions do all these things and more, because they also serve as a call to action for our faith tradition as a whole. To say that merely creating sanctuaries where it's okay to be religious in a different way than society would suggest is not enough. But we must also be ourselves, known in the community, so that the discourse about religion can shift from the divisive battles that we see today to a new understanding of how to work for the common good together as people who believe in different things but believe in something greater. In the time since I met him, much more of Chris's story has unfolded. After Meadville Lombard, he dove deeply into the, the atheist community, beginning with that story that we heard, while also working at the Interfaith Youth Corps with Ibu Patel. He had known for some time that he wanted to bridge the atheist-theist divide, but his understanding of that divide was growing more and more. He returns to the story of the conversation where he was called a faithist to share that the same man had also said this. Take Islam. Now that's a violent faith. And don't try to tell me it's not because I've read the Quran, Chris writes, I thought of my friend Sayira, one of the most compassionate people I know. Sayira was a young woman who was motivated by her Muslim faith to work for the economically disadvantaged. She was close to receiving her black belt in karate. She was one of the most gentle and loving people I'd ever met, repeatedly opening her home and her kitchen to anyone who was hungry, and I was hungry a lot. She's a devout Muslim who isn't at all represented in this man's perception of Islam. Clearing my mind of the conversation about Islam, I turned my face to the overcast sky, the same direction I used to look up to in search of God, and recalled how, once upon a time, In moments of contemplation like this, I would direct a prayer up there. Now, years later, that notion felt alien, and I looked to my feet to realize that I was standing in a puddle, waterproofing my Chuck Taylors hadn't done much to make up for the holes in their sides. Conversations like this one just kept making the same point over and over for him. People get further and further divided because of the lack of relationship between people across the aisles. The atheist man who had not known anyone like Sayira, And Chris was the first gay man Sayira had ever really spoken to. And when people become real humans to us, with the same yearning for belonging and the same fear of loss, the same blood in our veins, and the same propensity to make mistakes, it's much harder to continue to not understand them and their beliefs. When you see the ways that their beliefs give them meaning and hope, when you watch them live compassionate lives of service, giving to those less fortunate, it's hard to get caught up in what you see as so wrong with their theology. He writes, I was not naive then, nor am I now, to the atrocities committed in the name of religion around the world. I do not pretend that religion has not played a sizable role in a great many conflicts since people first began to conceive of it, or that it does not do so today. Today, Historically, religion has been at the center of many atrocities. That's an undeniable important fact. But I also know that at various points in history, religion has been an enormous force for liberation. Religion has changed, reformed, and revolutionized the world. And it will continue to do so as long as it is central to the human story. After his years, As a committed member of the atheist community, he has some passionate things to say to it. He writes, I believe that this so-called new atheism, the kind that singles out the religious lives of others as its number one target, is toxic, misdirected, and wasteful. Disengaged or antagonistic atheism weakens our community's claims that an ethical life is possible without a belief in God, supplanting this with an alienating narrative that both distracts us from investing in community-building efforts of our own and prevents us from accomplishing anything outside of our small community. He has committed his life as an atheist religious professional, to the acts of building things up rather than tearing things down. He is a living bridge between the growing divide of atheist and theist, as is, I believe, our entire faith tradition, especially when we are clear about what brings us together, what holds us close, and what makes space in this sanctuary for an atheist and a Christian and an agnostic humanist mystic seeker. His foundational premise, the truth on which his life is based, is that all people are worthy of dignity and love. Does that sound familiar to anyone? All people are worthy of dignity and love? Well, that right there is a large part of what binds this tradition together. It sounds to me a lot like our first principle and our universalism all at once. And the way we get there, he says, is telling our stories and sharing our beliefs. The way we get there is listening to one another rather than jumping to conclusions about what we might mean by something we've said. The way we get there is by deepening our relationships with one another, asking questions and remaining open to the answers, seeking greater understanding. Still, he writes, there is a process of deconstruction involved in interfaith work. We must be willing to grapple with our fears and with the unknown and uncover the hearts of diverse human experience. I think about it like I did the Minnesota corn I grew up eating. We shuck it to get to the part we can eat, the part that nourishes and feeds us. Just as in interfaith work, we try to get to the past our differences to look for shared aspirations, our common goodness. But those husks can be recycled and used too. When I was younger, my mom taught my siblings and me to make dolls out of the husks that remained after we had cooked and consumed the sweet corn we bought at a roadside stand. Our differences don't need to be tossed aside. Our diversity can be an asset instead of something to overcome. We can use our distinct skills and ideas to achieve our shared goals. Our stories, our experiences, all that has brought us to our theologies, these are the husks that we shuck but do not discard. Our lives, all that have made us who we are, all that has brought us to our beliefs, are beautiful and precious and weave into the tapestry of our diversity when we share them with one another. Our memories are, must be shared, lest we forget them and how they have shaped our journeys. The ways in which religion can harm has a place, alongside the ways in which it can offer strength in our weak moments and warmth in the cold. The suffering it has caused stands alongside the suffering it has eased through justice work, and direct service, and just offering faith and liberation to someone when they needed it. We must not be afraid to tell our stories. just Not just the ones that come easily to our lips, but also the ones that get caught in our throats. For those are probably the ones we need to tell and the ones that need to be heard most. Tell the stories that would interest most the poet Uriah Mountain Dreamer, who writes, It doesn't interest me what you do for a living. I want to know what you ache for, and if you dare to dream of meeting your heart's longing. It doesn't interest me how old you are. I want to know if you will risk looking like a fool for love, for your dream, for the adventure of being alive. It doesn't interest me what planets are squaring your moon. I want to know if you've touched the center of your own sorrow. If you've been opened by life's betrayals and have some shriveled and closed fear uh, uh, and haven't become shriveled and closed from fear of future pain. I want to know if you can sit with pain, mine or your own, without moving to hide it or fade it or fix it. I want to know if you can be with joy, mine or your own. If you can dance with wildness and let the ecstasy fill you to the tips of your fingers and toes without cautioning us to be careful, to be realistic, to remember the limitations of being human. Would you tell me such things? The stories that show me who you are as a person of faith, no matter what you put your faith in, no matter what divisions we may put between us because we've reached different conclusions through our journeys, will you tell each other? Will you share these deep parts of yourself and listen to one another with compassion, and understanding for not just the parts that resonate with your story but also for the ways in which the differences open your mind and bring you new insight will you be a human bridge that our world needs will you start right here and right now amen